1: My name is Nicole trujillo Pagan and I'm a sociologist, an associate professor, and your host, here with Emily Flitter to talk about her book, The White Wall, How Big Finance Bankrupts Black America. Emily Flitter covers banking and Wall Street for The New York Times. Before this, she spent eight years at Reuters writing about politics, financial crimes, and the environment. Flitter holds an MA in Near Eastern Studies and Journalism from New York University and a BA from Wellesley College. She began her journalism career as a freelance reporter in Cairo. The White Wall is her first book. Welcome, Emily. Thank you for having me, Nicole. Yeah, I'm so excited about your book, which you open with a story about how, as a journalist, you were looking to crack the story of racism on Wall Street, much like the Me Too movement was exposing sexual abusers in Hollywood. Tell us how that approach worked and what it tells us about racism on Wall Street.
0: Well, actually, what happened was I was asked by some editors to investigate why the Me Too movement hadn't really blossomed on Wall Street the way it had in the media industry and in Hollywood. And one of the first things I did was call lawyers who are known to represent Um, people who filed discrimination cases, whether that's sexual discrimination or racial discrimination. And I called a lawyer who's based in Chicago. Her name is Linda Friedman. And she, I said to her, basically, I'm looking around for me Too stories on wall street. Where are they? And she said, you are focusing on the wrong problem. The sexual harassment that happens on wall street isn't nearly as bad as the racial discrimination that happens and nobody will touch that subject. And I've been trying to get people to write about it. And I was like, okay, fine. I will, I'll do it. And then we started talking and it actually took a long time before I wrote a story because she presented me and there were other people um, who presented me with these stories and they all had, um, a, a he said, she said element to them that I couldn't sort of a, from a journalistic process overcome. And then one day I heard from a JP Morgan employee or former employee, I should say, who had recorded everything. And that just totally changed the game. And I was able to write a story. Um, and it was it was really impactful. Uh, a million and a half people read it. And um, And J.P. Morgan announced that they were making changes because of it, although, you know, I I argue in the book that they haven't done nearly enough. Um, So that's that's kind of the backstory.
1: You know, I feel like there's something that's happening here. You know, I'm a sociologist, so I don't talk to the public. You're a journalist who seems to talk to the public you know, very often and know what the public um, wants to hear and what they're willing to hear. But you tell us that most Americans are unaware of the wealth gap between white and black families. So how is it that, you know, there's this, this juncture between what, you know, academics seem to know so well. And, you know, you talk in the book about several professors, you know, keep repeating their data over and over. And, you know, corporate executives on Wall Street seem to be unaware of this. And you seem to suggest that your readers are also unaware of this. How is it that something that we know so well doesn't seem to translate beyond Friedman or your conversations with her?
0: I think that the racial progress narrative has done a huge, uh, disservice to the entire country. And that narrative basically, um, is, you know, a, uh, a story of a positive movement that starts at the bottom from slavery and moves toward a top, which we have reached, uh, of equality through years of discrimination, Jim Crow, um, and through the 1960s, when the civil rights movement uh, resulted in anti-discrimination laws being passed, so most Americans get taught this narrative in school, and they—and when I say most Americans, I mean white Americans—because Black Americans know that this isn't right, and um, this isn't the the reality that they face every day. Um, but everybody gets told in school that this is what happened we you know we were bad in the past but now everything is fixed and everybody's equal and we don't need affirmative action anymore apparently Um, and that is just not true it's not but um, the alternative is a depressing alternative and it goes against the um, public you know Story that we've all been told our whole lives, and a lot of people don't get exposed to any alternatives to that story. Um, and I count myself among them. I, when I was growing up, that was my understanding of. U.S. history. And once I got exposed and once I started to actually confront the stories that people brought to me after I published my first one, I realized that there's just this huge amount of unacknowledged pain and trauma and injustice that's still happening. And my book just captures a little bit of it. But I think it's really important for everybody to know about it and absorb it and familiarize themselves with it so they can be part of an effort to really change it.
1: You know, I think that your book does a really great job of helping us see how patterned um, black people's experiences are with banks. Um, I think that this moment, it's interesting that we're talking about Me Too and you talk about George Floyd and obviously there are moments in your book where you talk about racial profiling. It seems Americans are, are getting aware of how that happens with police, right? The George Floyd incident really brought that home. But I think that what your book does is it helps us see how this profiling affects Black people's experiences in banking. Can you help the audience understand the
0: ubiquitous of this? It is a really good comparison to compare it to police. I was able to get hold of internal emails that J.P. Morgan Chase tellers, so that's the retail side of J.P. Morgan is Chase Bank. Um, Chase tellers uh, send each other these emails warning each other about suspicious characters who have come into their branches. This process is arguably a legitimate process because there are people out there who want to trick bank tellers into turning over money that they can't rightly have access to because it's not theirs. Um, And it doesn't, uh, you know, seem all that weird for one teller at a branch that's maybe just a few miles away from another Chase branch to say, hey, this weird thing happened and I'd just be on the lookout for this, this person. What I saw, though, in these emails was that there were really two categories of warnings, and one category described activity that on its face was fraudulent. For instance, somebody coming into a bank branch and presenting a bank card that had already been reported stolen um, and trying to use it pretending to be the person who had the card stolen from them. The other category, though, was simply physical descriptions of people, and they were Black. Um, These people came into the branch, and in the descriptions of what happened next, there was a common theme of a teller just not believing that they were there for up-and-up purposes and rejecting them as potential customers. So one young man who was black and had dreadlocks, tried to cash a check and the teller said that he they didn't believe that it was his check. And then in this particular instance, the teller actually in this email described calling the issuer of the check and actually having the issuer confirm that they issued the guy the check. And yet by this time, the potential customer was so upset that he took the check back and left. And this is the kind of thing that happens to black people who walk into a bank no matter what the bank branch, whatever the bank brand is. I've, you know, we've all heard about Ryan Kugler, the director of Black Panther, walking into a Bank of America asking to discreetly withdraw a lot of cash and then getting handcuffed because the tellers assumed that he was a bank robber. Um, I documented examples of this happening at Wells Fargo. It also happens at small banks you've never heard of. It's big and small, um, and it's not specific to an institution. It's simply that The tellers who work for banks in general are making an assessment of who deserves to have money, who it is logically, uh, you know, reasonable should have money. And they look at at a black person who walks into a bank and a lot of times they think, I don't think this person has money. And if they do, they didn't get it in a a legitimate way. So that's how I'm going to treat them. That's what racial profiling looks like in the retail banking setting.
1: That's really interesting that you help us think about tellers in that way, right? So tellers is sort of being the front line as if they were, you know, know, beat officers or police officers on the street. But what's interesting is that your book outlines a whole army of teller-like people, right? Like, let's think about your discussion of the uh, mortgage lenders, where Black borrowers are blamed for the uh, mortgages they took up leading to the 2008 recession. Can you tell us more about why is it that the borrower is blamed? And do you think that's that's fair that they didn't know enough about uh, the rates that they were taking out for their mortgage?
0: No, it's totally unfair to blame black families who had exploding rate mortgages for those mortgages. There were uh, banks, including Wells Fargo, where it's been documented that mortgage salespeople actually went to black churches and convinced people to switch from 30-year mortgages that they already had on their houses and refinance into these ridiculous products that were completely predatory. I remember so clearly, and this isn't in the book, but... um, I was having a conversation with a woman who was speaking to me because she had decided to switch her banking relationship from one of the big banks to a black owned bank. And I was trying to, I was doing some reporting, which I never published in a story about just why do. People want to go through all the motions to get their money out of, say, Bank of America and put it into like a smaller bank that may not offer the same suite of technology or may not have the same number of ATMs or any ATMs for that matter that, you know, you don't have to pay to use. Um, And she said, I watched my parents lose their house in the financial crisis because a big bank mortgage salesman had sold them this terrible product and told them that it was the only option that they had. And um, I just decided I didn't want to be part of that system anymore. And um, when I think about the sense of betrayal, in fact, I spoke with another black man who was a financial advisor himself, and he worked for one of the big banks in their financial advisory business, and he went to their mortgage department and said, I'm going to buy like a condo what can I get for a mortgage? And the mortgage salesperson looked at him. He's, they're an employee of the same, you know, umbrella organization, but different businesses and said, you know, all you qualify for is X. And that turned out to be one of these predatory um, exploding rate products. And he lost his house. And he was telling me, he was like, how am I supposed to advise other people on what to do with their money if I can't even hang on to my own house and pay my own mortgage? But um, the person who sold him that product told him that was his only option. And that happened over and over again and across the country. It's totally unfair. um, And it, it extracted so much wealth from Black Americans. It's just unbelievable.
1: You know, I really want to underline this word that you're using, trust. It comes out in your book, too. And I feel that, I mean, having read your book, I almost wish we could have, you know, put that in bold, uh, underlined it about 20 times, because the issue of trust seems to be implicit in so much of your conversation. For instance, in one part of the book, you talk about how, um, you know, people who need to cash a payroll check would rather go to one of those, you know, uh, I don't know, the ones that are on that are the, the street that will, that will cash your check for a really large fee. And that, in fact, you know, someone could have more trust in that institution than a conventional bank. Because if you open up, right, an account, you might have unexplained fees or overdraft fees. So this issue of trust, you know, if you imagine being um, someone who's black who needs to do banking in America, America seems like it's perennially misplaced. Is that An unfair read of your book?
0: That trust is perennially misplaced. No, I. I mean, I think it's been. It's. It's interesting that you put it like that. I've. I've spoken in public about my book, um, in different places, actually, including in Detroit, and I get a question a lot from audience members, most of whom are black, saying like, "Where can we turn? Where is it safe?" And the question arises because. There are just examples everywhere of how it isn't safe, um, and I argue in the book that it won't be safe until the institutions who uh, are part of the system realize how they fit into the system and make fundamental changes to how they treat people. Uh, and they don't; they aren't doing that. Um, and so, I I think you know the way you framed it is right. Um, there are institutions out there whose whole existence is centered around trying to fix this problem. And so it doesn't mean that if you're Black, there's absolutely nowhere to turn for financial services. But it's important to know going into it if your institution says we are an institution dedicated to economic justice and and racial economic equality, or if they're just like using it as a marketing tool.
1: You know, I think that there's, I want to I sort of distinguish between people who have money, right? Like your payroll check and you want to protect it and you don't know um, who to trust. But then there's the, also the question of, I finally made some money, you know, and I want to protect it. And so you talk about tellers and you talk about mortgage lenders, but then there's also a big conversation, for instance, when you talk about Ricardo, where you introduce us to the world of um, uh, investment advisors. So I've worked really hard, you know, whatever I've done, I've gotten something that I want to protect or potentially grow. Is there a place that I can grow my money with trust in American banking?
0: Well, when you bring up Ricardo, you're 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 talking about Ricardo Peters who is the JP Morgan Chase employee who recorded basically the the entirety of his experiences as a black financial advisor in Phoenix working for Chase. And one of the most um, striking bits of the recordings that he made is when he goes to his white boss and says, "I have a new potential client who has four hundred thousand dollars," and she's and he doesn't explain that she's black, but they both know who he's talking about. The, the he refers to her, you know, and has previously described her to his boss, um, and so his boss knows. That the reason that this woman has four hundred thousand dollars is that she her son died, and and a municipality that was involved in his death in some way, and I don't know the details, gave her a settlement of four hundred thousand dollars. So they're talking about this client. They both know who she is, she's black. And Ricardo is saying, I wanna, you know, bring her on as a wealth management client. And his boss says, you're not investing a dime for this lady. This isn't money she earned. She doesn't respect it. It's going to be gone in twelve to eighteen months. I've seen it a hundred times. She's from Section Eight. He says all this stuff, and Ricardo's like, "But wait a minute! Isn't this why we exist? Like, don't aren't we supposed to show her how to manage her money?" And he says, "No, you're not investing a dime for this lady." And so that's where uh, somebody. Who's several levels up from a bank teller who works for one of these big banks is saying, I'm making a judgment on who deserves to have money and whose wealth is legitimate and whose wealth is illegitimate. And again, um, you know, I've uh, one of the things that I talk about in the book is how I went to a conference that's for black financial advisors. It's um, the Association of African American Financial Advisors, is what it's called. And the advisors there, the theme, it was an annual meeting, so it wasn't like it was focused on this, but but everybody was talking about how when you're Black and you become a financial advisor, you start your career at a big bank, and then at a certain point, you can't do it anymore because you don't get treated right, and then you go out on your own. So now there are all these independent money managers out there who are Black, and they're they're known as RIAs, registered Uh, investment advisors and they have their own wealth management businesses. And those are the people who understand how to build black wealth and help preserve it because they are living it. So that's one um, phenomenon that's, you know, it's, it's a sort of making lemonade out of lemons, although it's really hard to be on your own and it's hard to attract and keep big clients and, you know, everybody's just working as hard as they can.
1: But it seems like we're developing a list already, right? So if I'm uh, trying to catch catch my check, the tellers are going to be suspicious of me. I'm excluded from service. I get no service. uh, I need a uh, mortgage. I'm going to get a predatory loan. So now I get a predatory service. I have this wealth and I want to, um, you know, secure, perhaps grow, and now I'm excluded from investment service. There's a lot of ways that this seems to be happening for the person who needs the service or who has the money. And then there's this whole setup on the other side that even where you have representation in the form of Ricardo, there's all of these sort of impediments to accessing equal banking. Does that seem fair to the way that you're drawing us out to all these characters on the bank side and on the um,
0: consumer side? Absolutely. That's the white
1: wall. That's the white wall, right? That's the white wall. That's really helpful. That's really helpful because it's almost like the white wall is operating like the border, you know, the US border. Let's see if I can uh, jump across it before I get shot or something to that effect. Um, I I hate to make the analogy, but there, there just seems to be something really violent in terms of the extraction of wealth, the loss of my home, you know. Um, and as I read through the, your stories, you know, people really losing entire careers and ending up broke because, well, I'll leave it to the readers to see all the, the really impactful um, examples that you provide. I just want to draw out some of the patterns here. The one that I'm really um, interested in getting to, because I feel like we rarely talk about it, is the issue of blank Black entrepreneurs, right? You talk about, um, you know, I think that Black entrepreneurs are interesting because they're not necessarily relying on their individual credit scores to get a loan or their employment histories. Um, But you talk about this issue of uh, venture capital and needing those you know startup funds to start a business i want to talk about two pieces of this one the venture capitalism uh the venture capital but but let's start from the beginning at the beginning of your book you talk about the paycheck protection program what was that why does it get set up the way that it gets set up and how does it disadvantage uh, black entrepreneurs
0: so the paycheck protection program was a way for the u.s government to get money into the hands of employees of small businesses um, right at the beginning of the pandemic when lockdowns were um, widespread across the country and businesses just had to close overnight. And so that was just like the business owner wasn't going to have any money coming in and wasn't going to be able to pay employees. And it was about to be this crisis, you know, that that trickled down into who's going to be able to pay rent and buy food and all that stuff, because people live paycheck to paycheck. So what if, what happens if they're not going to get their paycheck? The government was trying to solve that problem. And they didn't just want to hand out money to people through their payroll processing or other means like that. Um, so they decided to structure the program as a series of forgivable loans that went to small business owners that the business owners were then only allowed to use for certain things, including paying employees who were being essentially paid to stay home. Um, The paycheck. So, so the government, then the problem became, how do we administer this massive, very, very, very quick effort And they looked at the financial system and thought, okay, we'll just, we'll make the banks do it. So the banks know how to lend. They know how to check people out and make sure that they deserve to be able to borrow money. And we'll just give them all this money and tell them to lend it out. And then nobody has to pay it back, assuming that they meet all of the, you know, that they keep the promises that they made basically when they took out the loans. So um, the problem with that is that. The Paycheck Protection Program quickly became a place where if you already had a good banking relationship, it was not that hard for you to get uh, one of these special loans that was not going to ever be paid back. If you didn't have a relationship with a bank already, you were really adrift. And because there has been and continues to be so much discrimination in banking that when you're Black, as soon as you walk in the door you are at a disadvantage. There were far, far fewer black business owners who had solid banking relationships. And I describe in the book, a woman who didn't have a relationship with any bank and yet managed to open up a hair salon in Baltimore. Her name is Yasmin Young. She's black. She learned how to do her own plumbing to be able to do as much as she could with this hair salon from opening it up to running it and fixing all the problems with it as they arose um, without having to borrow money because she just could not get anybody to lend to her. She had a checking account at bank of America that she used to, you know, handle the checking needs that she had for her business. But when she went there and this was before the pandemic and asked them if they could just give her a business credit card, the tell her the the person she spoke to at her branch looked at her credit profile and said, "You probably won't qualify." Now that is not no, we're not going to lend to you, but it's discouraging. So she was like, "Okay, well, I'll just have to get a business credit card somewhere else." And she got it from Capital One, which has a, a sort of more permissive uh, c- credit card program. So the pandemic hits and sh- and Yasmin has a bank account at one bank and a credit card at another bank, and neither bank considers these things strong enough relationship-wise to give her a PPP loan. So she just cannot get one. Eventually, a, a nonprofit helped her get something through a, an online lender, but it was weeks and weeks and weeks after, and there were other businesses who couldn't afford to wait that long and just went out of business? Um, that's what happened in the Paycheck Protection Program. It was it was devastating for Black business owners.
1: I think it's um, confusing why the federal government turns to banks. Why again this issue of trust? Why is it that the government at this moment of you know crisis trusts the banks to
0: um,
1: distribute the Paycheck Protection Program?
0: The other way that the government could have done it was through the IRS and the major payroll processing companies. And they chose to, to use the banks instead. I am not in the heads of the people who made up this legislation, so I can't speak for sure. But some of the arguments that were put forth at the time were that the banks simply had a bigger workforce and could basically handle this capacity better than even the IRS. Um, There was a proposal that was put forth by certain members of Congress, both in the House and Senate, after the first round of the Paycheck Protection Program went out to change it so that it did rely on these other institutions and not on banks, but it wasn't accepted by the majority.
1: You know, I guess the reason I'm pushing at this, um, Emily, is that I I think as a reader, I want to step back. And I think that... um maybe you don't see what, what the reader who doesn't know as much as someone who covers, you know, banking and Wall Street sees. And I think that the average American is going to think, you know, you know, any banker is going to think that the only color that matters is green. So of course, it makes perfect sense, right, for the federal government to trust um, banks to administer the Paycheck Protection Program in a way that would read out weed read out fraudsters. And that's why I think the rest of your book is a little bit hard to, to accept because all of it seems so surprising, right? If banks are supposed to be neutral, money is money, why would it discriminate?
0: Then how is all of this happening? Well, the government um, has not even treated money as money. And um, I didn't get into the history of it uh, in the way Mercer Baradaran did, who wrote The Color of Money. She describes an unequal system um, perpe- created and perpetuated by the government itself of treating Black wealth and Black-owned financial institutions differently from White-owned financial institutions and keeping a, segre- a level of segregation that's just stunning. So I, the premise that the federal government is neutral Um, and that money is only green is just false. And that's just another thing that most of us grow up not knowing, because unless we're living that experience, it just isn't explained to us.
1: I think there's also something else about being an American, which is that we seem to have, um, especially now, this distrust, right, of Of government you write about how um in the later part in the book you talk about american ceos love to boast about how they can change the world and i think a lot of americans would like to trust that you know uh, JP Morgan Chase uh, CEO Jamie Dimon, Amazon, Amazon CEO Jeff Bezos, and the billionaire investor and Berkshire Hathaway founder Warren Buffett could, in fact, fix the American healthcare system. I mean, we want to believe, right, that there is something about these neutral CEOs that somehow are less partisan or influenced by ideology. Maybe they could do something better. And what do we what do we find in that in that example?
0: Well, I brought that up in the book. That was an effort that those three leaders of big businesses um engaged in to come together and use their workforces. I think combined they employed like three million people, but I could be wrong about I I, I could be wrong about that number. I'm just not looking at it. But it was several million. Um and to just basically use their own workforces as um, examples on how to deliver healthcare more cheaply and better to the vast majority of Americans. So they wanted to say, We're going to do an experiment on our own healthcare provisions to our employees, and we want it to serve as an example that maybe even the federal government could adopt. And they announced this with big fanfare and it was covered in all the papers including us um the new york times i should say um and then like nothing happened they realized it was really hard to figure out how to do healthcare differently from how it was being done and they basically gave up and disbanded the effort um but it was such an ambitious goal that i thought wow they think they can actually do this, even if in this case they failed. And yet, when they acknowledge that the racial wealth gap exists from time to time when it's expedient for them, they don't announce anything like this. They don't even seem to be making an effort that's as big as the one that they made in the healthcare area. And I think that's a really telling difference. Yeah, I think that it's,
1: it's really telling, but it's something that is almost, um, it's so systematically ignored, right? That one mistake, that one case, oops, well, I guess it didn't work out. We'll move on. It, it's, it's like, uh, how do you prove the missing case? If nothing came, then we'll just ignore it. And I think that, that this issue recurs when you talk about this issue, um, about the court's and policy. And I think that this really comes up now when we're talking about the Supreme Court decision about reasonable care, right? This Tell us more about reasonable care and this idea that if we have a
0: policy, then we're done. Well, so what you're actually referring to, as I discuss it in the book, is a, um, a, a precedent that s- says to companies, if you have... Um, policies and procedures in place to prevent uh, workplace harassment, a hostile work environment, sexual and, and racial discrimination, um, then they work in court as an affirmative defense against people trying to claim that these conditions exist at the at the workplace in question. Um, basically they set the bar for proving and getting damages for harassment or a toxic work environment much, much higher, just if you have these things on paper. And um, that's why in my examination of what happens to employees, including high-level employees at big banks who try to complain about being racially discriminated against, um, these companies basically just Know them with policies and um, procedural steps that they are performing in order to make the problem go away, rather than fix it in any meaningful way. Yeah,
1: so I feel like these are two more bricks in the in the so-called white wall. On the one hand, right? If um, if I have, if I have a policy in place, let's say I'm J.P. Morgan Chase, well, I can say that I have this policy. So if it didn't work, well, that's not my problem because I had the policy in place to prevent this discrimination. And then there's this other brick, which is I'm an employee and I feel that I've been discriminated against. Well, you know, you can't bring that to the courts where we might find out more about it. It's sort of sequestered off in arbitration. Is it fair to characterize those two as additional bricks in the wall?
0: Definitely. The, um, the way that big companies, and it's not just banks, but it's banks as well, um, force c- claims of discrimination into arbitration really helps the company uh, minimize the damage and basically not have to do that much to, to make the, these claims go away. The people who have their claims moved from court to arbitration can't band together and form a class. Everything that gets produced as evidence stays sequestered and out of the public eye. So court cases can't be used as, you know, document troves that could later, um, help other people in similar situations. There are all kinds of ways that arbitration prevents, um, employees from having force and critical mass um, I think it's interesting uh, to
1: think about um, the employees that are kind of you know sitting on the wall trying to trying to make things better for um, black um, you know black consumers we, you know like when we talk about Ricardo who wants to do justice to this black investor um, what what I want to get to, to is another person, Wayne Bland, you talk about Wayne Bland, and I want to think about him as another type of inter- uh, intermediary, like Ricardo, where he is trying to work at Edward Jones. And I want to know, this is almost this concept that you paint of having to pay to work at a company.
0: Yeah, so wealth management as a business is um, structured in such a way that Wealth managers, once they are sort of up and running, make their money by commission. They are almost like salespeople. They're selling financial products and the products themselves yield uh, income um, in a certain sense to the, the, the people who are selling them, um, to the wealth managers. So these big wealth management firms, and um, I focused on Edward Jones, uh, uh recruit and train huge forces of people who present themselves to potential customers as people who care about their finances. Um, but what they really are are basically glorified salespeople. Um, and Edward Jones actually, uh, and I have this statistic in the book, disclosed in its annual reports for the years that I, you know, immediately preceding the publication of the book um, that it recruited or it lost as many as 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 much as 50 percent of its new recruits every year because they couldn't make it. And the, the structure that these recruits were subjected to was we pay you a salary while you're studying for the exams that you need to be a qualified financial advisor. But once you get up and running, we stop paying you, you are nothing and you have to start earning your own commissions and building up your own business. And in the meantime, you pay us for using our office space and materials and other things Um and so that was how Edward Jones was sort of recouping the cost of training all these people, half of whom they knew they were going to lose anyway. Um, Wayne Bland got recruited uh, and went through this training process and and basically was set up to fail um, and ended up suing Edward Jones. And so I wrote about his case and um, he endured a lot trying to just keep his keep himself afloat, keep his family afloat. Um, and there's there was a lot of racism and discrimination that, uh, that caused him to not be able to make it in that world. And part of it was that white financial advisors were just handed business and black financial advisors were told they had to build up their own. Yeah, I think
1: it's really interesting to think about um, Wayne having to being encouraged to go door to door, not being able to use different methods to to secure, um, you know, a portfolio.
0: Exactly. I mean, one of the things, one of the features, the main features of Wayne's lawsuit against Edward Jones was that they were basically shamelessly forcing Black trainees to just walk around in neighborhoods and knock on doors, and that they were putting their physical safety in jeopardy every day.
1: Yeah, this is a this is kind of like um housing segregation, right? Being reflected in in fi- the the segregation of the financial services industry. Do people do wealth managers like Wayne Bland? Do they could they end up in
0: debt by trying to become wealth managers? So. It's interesting that you ask that um, the lawsuit that Wayne filed became a class action and some of the other class members, th- they were former Edward Jones employees, um, their whole lives were ruined. Their, they lost their houses, their marriages broke up. And I actually, um, in the book, there's another uh, Edward Jones uh, for- trainee who goes through the similar um You know, experiences that Wayne had. Her name's Felicia. And she um, lost so much money that she had to give up her car and eat popcorn for dinner because all she could do was pay her rent. And sometimes she couldn't even do that.
1: I mean, I think that, I think that you're really, um, throughout the book, portraying a case where it's not just the consumer, it's not just the mortgage lender, it's also someone who works for um, uh, financial service industry, someone who's trying to become a wealth manager and maybe provide um, different services through the color of money you talk about how even back wealth institutions are treated differently by the government I really it's it's amazing to see almost a whole portfolio really about discrimination and I want to turn to one more I guess the 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 real sort of front line here which is the the black entrepreneurs again I think it's interesting where we think about you talk about community development financial institutions and I want to talk more about how they're supposed to be the piece that helps black entrepreneurs get off the ground. What are some of the concerns that you raise about them? The ones that are supposed to be closest to black entrepreneurs.
0: CDFIs are um, the mission driven institutions who are most likely to be able to lend to black business owners. But um, the problem that they face is that their cost of capital is a lot higher than the costs that JP Morgan might pay for um, having the money that they need to lend. So they're constrained just by the fact that their uh, lending pool, the amount of money that they have that they can lend out, basically gets fed by either um, grants or by capital investments that the banks make. And the banks. Want a lot of money back for their investment. So um, that just means that the amount that there is available through these institutions remains small.
1: You know, I want to talk about. I mean, I'm in Detroit, so I have to push a little bit more about this. Um, you talk about the, there's this program that J.P. Morgan Chase has called them, um, entrepreneurs of color. And J.P. Morgan Chase gets a lot of uh, press, right? A lot of public, uh, positive public relations after 2008 because they're loaning to black entrepreneurs, and you know they also provide technical assistance. The venture capital goes to these CDFIs tell us, I mean, is that, is that something that we should see as philanthropy? Or is that something that we should see as good business for Chase?
0: Well, I actually would, if you don't mind, I'd like to bring up something that you said to me about JP Morgan's activities in Detroit. And that is that there's no way to measure what they're really doing and what impact it's having. Um, So if they're making individual loans to individual black business owners or entrepreneurs trying to set up a business for the first time, the as individuals, they have great stories to tell. But what does the big picture look like? Um, that's the problem with having a program that you're trumpeting um, as as sort of a solution, but you're not really giving anybody a measurable set of figures um, that basically shows what you're doing on a large scale. And it also doesn't, it, uh, J.P. Morgan isn't claiming that they've changed the regular business that they do that's got all these barriers to accessing capital for all the other people who aren't lucky enough to be the chosen few involved in this program. So, I think that's one of the main observations that I have about that. Yeah,
1: I think that it's really fair. You see on page 196, the bank also began publicizing each contribution with a media blitz that made it seem like JP Morgan bankers had galloped into a completely deserted hellscape and brought it back to life. And, you know, the issue that a lot of Detroiters have made is, you know, JP Morgan Chase was the biggest bank in Detroit before 2008. So, it's not like, you know, they're walking into a a territory that they had never been in before.
0: That's a good point. And I didn't even know that they were the biggest bank in Detroit before 2008. Yeah. Um, And so when you you also bring up some interesting points, I mean, I think that
1: your book gives us the ability to piece together this, um, let's follow the money. You said that by September 2019, uh, you know, for example, you note in 2014, J.P. Morgan began directing money in the form of donations and for capital, uh, for-profit capital, for capital allocations to existing community development efforts in the city. But then you also note that um, that's only 0.03% of its profits and that it, it potentially it's less than it had earned underwriting the city's water and sewer authorities' bond issues over the previous decade. And I think that that really gets at how... Um, how important these institutions are to cities and how Im- how difficult it would be to make sense of their role in the cities and the finances, not only of the you know people who live in a city, but also of the city government itself. And that's what gets us to this critical, um, I think, uh, question that I want to ask about loans to developers. You talk about how loans to developers are lucrative and they're sort of a piece between the bank and the city, right? Because cities need affordable housing.
0: That's right. I mean, the low-income housing tax credit is sort of a behemoth uh, of American housing policy. And I am not an expert in it in any way, like enough to criticize it or suggest an alternative. So let me just lay that out there. I'm, I really have not... Um. Taken a deep dive into the low-income housing tax credit as policy, and and I'm totally not qualified to comment on its merits or or anything like that. But the fact is that these big banks have a business lending to developers and and benefiting from that tax credit. The developers benefit, and the banks do too, um, which is also. Fine. Or, you know, I mean, I have no nothing to say about it other than that they're turning around in their racial equity pledges and saying, look what we're doing to help bring about racial economic equality. And that is not a connection that makes a lot of sense to me.
1: Yeah, I think that that's what's really hard to trace. If you're suggesting that we look more closely at the money, you know, the reader is is going to be really impaired in doing that. You for example, right on page two hundred and sixty about J P Morgan's pledge, right there. What is it? Thirty million dollar pledge to racial equity. You say a billion. That, oh, billion. Sorry, billion. Right, right. Let's not ah uh, minimize this this pledge. You say um twenty six billion of J P Morgan's pledge was instantly also capital that the banks could use to earn money. And I think that this is an idea that, you know, the banks could do good for both themselves. Right, and the people who are borrowing this money, I th- I think that's a really um, interesting and new idea that I hope readers try to unpack as they go through try to unpack as they go through, through your through your analysis. There's one more uh, question that I want to ask about terms that I don't think that the average reader is used to. You talk about about um, page um, 152 that area where you talk about adjusters are supposed to decide whether they pay customers' claims based on how they feel about the customer. And you introduce two different concepts they haven't heard before, disparate impact and proxy discrimination. Can you tell us what those are and why they matter?
0: So let me just take a quick step back and um, share with our listeners that now we're talking about insurance companies. And I have a chapter in the book that talks about how Black uh, insurance policyholders actually have a much harder time getting claims paid out um, than white policyholders, holders. And um, the uh the insurance companies sort of have argued since the death since the murder of George Floyd that um the difference between some of these outcomes isn't their fault they're not doing it on purpose and they um feel like if they didn't get to keep doing it their whole business model would collapse so i, I when I'm just when I'm just talking about disparate impact and proxy discrimination, I'm zooming in on a conversation that state legislators were having at that time, where um, after George Floyd's murder, these legislators who focus on making new laws governing the insurance industry and everyone um, should know, but few people, I think, do unless they're in the industry that Insurers are regulated by states and not the federal government. So, insurers love this because it means that you have fifty different regulators and you can complain about that fact. And none of them is a very powerful or well-funded organization. Um, Anyway, the the people involved in making new laws at the state level that govern the insurance industry um, realized that they needed to address in some way the problem of Race and racial discrimination in insurance. So they formed something that called the Committee on Race. This is the um, this is the national. Uh, it's NCOIL. I, I I'm not looking at the name, but I think it's the National Coalition on of Insurance Legislators. Um, they formed a committee on race, but the first thing they wanted to do is make sure that the. Definition of discrimination that they had to fix was the narrowest it could possibly be. And they didn't want it to include what financial institutions everywhere, including banks, say is a very hard thing to avoid having happen, and that is disparate impact. And what that means is that you do business, and in the course of your business, in which you're treating everybody the same, um, you know, but sort of applying a set of rules, you can't help it if the outcomes for those different groups or for different individual customers are different. And you can't help it if an entire group of people has a worse outcome than another group simply because you're just doing business and you're not intending to discriminate against anyone the insurers wanted to make sure that intent was the only way that they could have something count as really discrimination. But as we've seen from discussing the white wall, and as we've seen from even a cursory look at American history, the outcomes for Black Americans are worse in a lot of ways because of structural racism, structural inequality. And so a lot of what business is being done today, including in the insurance business is having a worse outcome for black Americans. Insurers don't want to have to be held accountable for that. A lot of financial institutions don't, they hate disparate impact and they do everything they can to keep it out of the regulatory environment. Um, I talk about the one time when big banks got together and actually said okay maybe we might have a problem here and that's right after george floyd's murder it was uh as you remember it was 2020 trump was president he had put um some people in charge of rewriting a set of laws governing the housing industry and home lending that um uh, would have taken it like completely to an extreme on on how anyone could get justice for a disparate impact case. And the banks were totally in support of this rewrite until George Floyd's murder. And then they came out and said, wait a minute, let's not do this right now. And they actually had, you know, individuals from banks um, writing letters to the agency that was responsible for this rule, HUD, um, and saying, please don't finalize the rule the way it is. It's too extreme. And HUD finalized it anyway, but then, Trump lost the 2020 uh, election. Biden came in and they scrapped that rule. So that's where it stands now.
1: Thank you so much, Emily, for talking to us about the white wall, how big finance bankrupts Black America.